First Timothy, and uh, we're going to be at the very end of the book here. So ch- chapter 6, last week we looked at that very, very familiar passage of Scripture on the love of money is, is the root of all evil. We looked at some of that, looked at fleeing from, uh, from those things that cause us to not love God and cause us to be less, uh, more, less like what he would want us to be, those things that cause us to go to evil. And we all know what they are. I don't have to explain them to you. We all know those temptations we have that we may enjoy, and they may bring some, as I said last week, momentary distraction from all the pain and angst and uncomfortableness of life. But we know in the long run that those things do not make us more like Christ. And in that sense, they don't make us better people. They don't make us better husbands, better wives, better better employees, better family members, better friends. They they do just the opposite. And remember, Paul tells young Timothy, he's giving him some very specific instructions as he wraps up this letter. And he just says, you flee, you run, you don't hang out. And remember, the whole theme from last week was, you don't manage your sin. You know, sometimes if we think we can just manage my sin, I can handle it. And, you know, I love that Paul, in all of his wisdom, he's unpacking to young Timothy, is telling him, don't even go there. Don't even try to manage sin. You flee from it. You run from it. You get away from it because you cannot manage it. You're going to have to serve somebody, right? Remember, it was the third Sunday in a row I've quoted Bob Dylan. It might be the devil and it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And that's true. You have to flee from it. And this uh, wonderful letter to this young man who is considering seriously leaving this place, it's a difficult place, full of all kinds of challenges, everything from generational fights to people who want to argue and fuss over things that don't matter, to people who are just straight out teaching false doctrine, to people who are incredible legalists and want to add all kinds of activities you have to do in order to make sure you really are a follower of Jesus, to people who don't think Timothy's old enough, mature enough, smart enough, wise enough, strong enough, powerful enough to be able to be any kind of leader in the church. And Timothy is wanting to leave. And so one of the primary reasons for the letter, as Paul says in the very few first few sentences, is I encourage you, I urge you to stay. And then as he, as he explains to him why he needs to stay, first and foremost, to teach sound doctrine, because if these people had sound doctrine, they wouldn't be behaving this way. And that's critically important, because sometimes in terms of, of our church life, we think, well, I don't want to, doctrine's boring. I want something less boring. Well, doctrine's not boring. Bo- doctrine is the truth of God. It's, it's how he wants us to live. And, and so you begin with that. But he also is encouraging Timothy. You see it throughout the entire letter. He calls him what? Man of God. The only place in the New Testament that that phrase is used is when Paul calls this young probably somewhat timid young man in his first place of ministry, a man of God. It reminds you of David's mighty men in the Old Testament. You don't get any stronger than that. And I just can't get over the fact that Paul is encouraging this young kid. He doesn't come to him and say, now, Timothy, let me make a list of all the things you've done that you have blown it here, all right? That's how most of us try to help one another. We want to point out all of our faults. And Paul doesn't do that. I mean, Paul, he encourages them. Remember, he says, when we laid hands on you. Remember how we all prayed. Remember how we all cried. Remember the faith that was in you that was first in your mother and your grandmother. 
Remember the calling you had. Remember, you are a man of God. So live like that. Be bold in that. And that's where we end here. As we come to the end, he's giving some final instructions. And we'll pick up where we picked up last week just so we can flow with it. But he's talking about fighting the good fight. Don't, don't lose sight of the fact that he begins by telling, in the first few verses of this letter, telling Timothy, stay there and battle for doctrine. And then he ends the letter with, you fight the good fight. I know sometimes we think life just ought to be easy and simple and painless. And I got news for you. It is going to be absolutely painless and glorious and without any conflict, without any fear, without any anxiety. That day is a certainty, but that day is not yet today. And right now, until Jesus comes again, until we go be with him, we are in a battle. Now, it's a battle that we know we're going to win. The outcome is certain. Pray with me. Father, there are many things we want to share this morning, and uh, I just pray that what we do share is what, what you want me to share. And I, I pray, Lord, that you'll open ears and eyes and speak to us today. So folks in this room, including myself, truly need to hear this amazing text and all the truth that's there. You're right here among us, man. You're not, you're not like out in the parking lot. You're not in the vestibule. Uh, you know, you're not wandering around the streets of Pleasant Hill figuring out which church you're going to show up at today. You are here among your people, in all your glory, in all your power, in all your might. So, Father, may we open our eyes and our ears and experience you today and all that you want to do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. I do have to leave quickly. I'm preaching tonight three or four times. I'm not sure why, but it'll probably be the same message, but I'll just repackage it. But, uh, there's a, a group of pastors, bivocational pastors in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and they have an annual conference for bivocational pastors, and it begins tonight at 4 o'clock, and I'm on at 4.20, and so, uh, and I'm driving. So, um, we'll get done quick here, and uh, you pray for me and Jill. Jill's going to be most of the driving as we head toward Tulsa, Oklahoma tonight, and I, I spend three or four hours with those men there this evening. So, I'm looking forward to that. But a man of God, verse 11, but man of God. I just, I, remember Oral Hershiser? He was a, a pitcher for the Dodgers. And who was his manager? Remember who his manager was? Thank you. Larusa. I threw that out there because I couldn't remember. But anyway, <laughs> thanks. And, and when, when Tony Larusa first saw Oral Hershiser as he came up out of the minors. I, I saw this on, sometimes it pays to watch the old Johnny Carson shows, because I was watching Johnny Carson a long time ago, and, uh, and uh, Hershiser was on there, I think, and he was talking to Carson about it or whatever, and about, you know, his nickname, because Tony LaRussa named him, nicknamed him the Bulldog, right? So he asked him where that name came from, and here's the truth. Hershiser said, when I first came up, I was shy and timid and insecure and uncertain about myself. And LaRusa knew that I had in me the ability to be one of the greatest pitchers of all time. And so he gave me a nickname, the Bulldog, way before that fit. (laughs) 
because he knew that's who I was. And he said, he constantly reminded me, you're the bulldog, you're the bulldog. And he said, I grew into that. And ever since then, I thought about how that's what, that's what Paul's doing here with young Timothy. You look at Timothy, he's not a man of God if you look at him from that sense. But Paul knows that there's in Timothy this amazing calling and anointing, and he is indeed the man of God. And he's, he's really giving in this name knowing that he will live up to it. I, I just, I love that. Encouragement is so important. A couple of years, or a year ago or so, Jill and I were out in San Diego. We were on the deck of, of the USS Enterprise, and I had this young man, or not a young man, he's probably my age or older, older me now, because he, he was in Vietnam. And he said he actually, actually served on this, on this carrier in Vietnam. And he talked especially about when, when the jets would come in at night and they had to land on the deck of the carrier at night. And even then, he said they, could, they had some, sometimes some sensors and things, and they do now, especially to talk about respiration and heartbeat. And that basically for many of the pilots, landing on the carrier at night brought more anxiety and, 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 and perspiration and, and, and heart rate and all of that, pulse rate, than actually making the actual bombing run. Because at night on a carrier that's moving and the sea is pitching, and you, you know all of that. Maybe you don't, but it's a very dangerous and, and, and difficult thing. And his job was to, was to call in, the, the, give, give, give the uh, communication to the pilots who were about ready to land. And he explained to us about the light system, you know, the red and the yellow, and making sure you're coming at the right speed and the right angle, not too fast, not too slow. And he said, the anxiety in these men, they've already done a, 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 a battle. They've already, they've already been out on a, on, a, on a mission and through danger and could have gotten shot down, and they've, they've unloaded their ordnance. So they've already gone through all that, and now they're coming back. And, and he said, they're getting ready to land, and they're depending on me to help guide them in. And he said, you know, the one thing you don't want to do is go, no, you're coming in too fast. <laughs> no, pull up, out to the left. You don't want to add to their anxiety. He said, so what we did is we would say, you're looking great. Oh, that's looking good. Man, you're coming in great. Can you just a little, just a little more to the, oh, perfect. Okay, maybe a little more to the right. I said, we about got it. Man, you're looking great. He said, even if they weren't, <laughs> you wanted to calm them down, and you brought them in by encouraging them to make small improvements, not by saying, you're going to crash. <laughs> I mean, sometimes that's how we treat one another. That's how, and I, as, I, as I mentor men, I want to think about that. Sometimes I just want to take them by their shoulders and go, you're an idiot. You're doing something so stupid. <laughs> and Paul is such a mentor to young Timothy. He still gets the message across, but he does it in such a wonderful way. Man of God. And then he says, you've got to flee from those things. Flee from those things that, 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 that make you want to be further from Christ. Those things that, 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 that cause you not to love Jesus more. Those things that cause you to not love holiness. Flee from those things that if, if Jesus were standing literally and you knew it right here with you, you wouldn't do them and you wouldn't say them. All right? Flee from those things. But you don't just run crazily away in no particular direction. We, we spent time last week talking about the importance of fleeing from sin. But what do you flee to? I mean, that's, that's just as important as running. 
Timothy. Just as important as running from sin and staying out of it, what do you run to? And he says, obviously here, you flee from sin and you pursue, you run to righteousness. And then he goes on to godliness, to faith, to love, endurance, and gentleness. Let's let's talk about those for a minute. You pursue righteousness. You want to be righteous. Well, not your righteousness. You don't have any righteousness. I don't have any righteousness. That's been proven. I mean, if we were righteous, we wouldn't have this church. We wouldn't come and take the Lord's Supper like we did last week. You wouldn't have to confess your sins and be baptized. You just live a good life. Well, there's none righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of one sin is death and separation. So what's he mean? He means you pursue Christ's righteousness. You desire to be like him. And I think one of the one of the simplest and clearest ways I can explain to you what it means to pursue Christ's righteousness is to see some two- or three-year-old little boy who sees his dad's shoes in the hallway, and he can't wait to put his dad's shoes on and walk around in his dad's shoes. He looks silly. He falls. He can't move very well in them. But your heart is drawn to that. Why? Because more than anything else, this little boy who is in no way able to fill those shoes, both, both, both in terms of his size, but also what, what he could do at that age, there's no doubt that his desire is to be like his dad. That's what it means to pursue righteousness. It doesn't mean you're going to make it, you're going to be perfect. You're gonna, those shoes are too big for you. You're going to fall all the time. But your desire to pursue righteousness your heart, to lo- you love God so much, you want to do what he wants you to do. You want to be what he wants you to be, not out of guilt, not out of fear of him, not out of trying to earn his favor, but simply out of your love for him. And the more you love him, the more you want to be like him, and the more you want to be with him, and the more you're with him, the more you want to be like him. That's what it means to pursue righteousness. And you can see in all of Paul's writings, he's preaching the gospel to himself constantly. Even in this text we've seen the last few weeks, several times in the middle of his letter, he breaks out of this amazing sermon about the glory of Christ and and, and the redemption of the Lord and the position that Jesus has. And he just never gets over the gospel. He never stops following in love with Jesus. John the Apostle always refers to his own self as the, the one, that the apostle that Jesus loved. And as I told you, he's not bragging on himself. He's bragging on Jesus. He can't believe after all these years that Jesus decided to love him. My own father, near the end of his life, nearly 90 years old, whenever he would pray, he would always begin his prayer with, Lord, thank you for seeking and saving me, a sinner. And it wasn't hollow words. He meant it as though it was the first time he ever said it. You pursue righteousness. That means you pursue Christ and his righteousness. And he'll give you his righteousness. That's the cool thing. You see, the righteousness we have is not our own. It's his. You know, there is the armor of God. The armor of God is, among other things, the breastplate of Christ's righteousness most important part of the armor was the breastplate, protected all the vital organs. 
It's the righteousness of Jesus. You know what that means? It means your adversary, it means Satan, cannot penetrate the righteousness of Christ. He can't. You get up in the morning and you put on your righteousness, before you have breakfast, he'll shred it to pieces. Because you and I don't have any righteousness. And we know it and he knows it. We are not right before God. We sin. We are nature. By our nature, we are sinful. Even in our most diligent moment, we give in to temptation of pride and ego and many other things. Jesus was perfect in his righteousness. And his perfect righteousness is given to us to wear. And, and, and because we wear his righteousness. Look, when, when God looks at... When God looks at... Some, do you ever feel bad about yourself? Do you ever feel worthless? Do you ever feel, do you ever feel like you just... No matter how hard you try, you, you can't make it. And you're always making mistakes. You say things you don't want to... Of course we do. Realize that if you're a child of God, if, if you've re- repented of your sin and called him Lord, do you realize that God has done this amazing transaction that only he can do? And, and he took the righteousness of Jesus and, and he laid it on you, all right? So when, when Christ came and lived this perfect, sinless life, Tempted in every way like we were, but never once gave in and yielded to temptation. And not only did he just not sin, but he lived a perfect life, and he was perfectly obedient to the Father in every way. He died a perfectly obedient death. He, he, the Father was overjoyed in the perfect sacrifice of his Son. So that for those of us who repent of our sin and call Jesus our Lord, and, and, and he, we receive this amazing transaction where the righteousness of Jesus is given to us. When God looks upon us as we have confessed and repented of our sin, he looks at us not as people who once were sinful and the whiteboard has now been wiped clean. You, you know what I mean? You walk into a room and, and there's nothing on there, but you can kind of tell there probably was something on there one time. It's, a, it's clean, but you can tell it's been wiped clean, right? That's not the way it is with us. For those of us who know Christ and have been redeemed, when God looks at us, he looks at us as those who never had a mark on the board at all. We've never sinned. And not only does he say, okay, then, then, then because they've never sinned, they, they're not they are not under my wrath. But no, it's more than that. It's more than that. He takes the joy that he sees in his son, and we get that too. <laughs> he is so pleased in Jesus. All of that is on us. He is pleased in us, not in our human activity, not in what we've done. But again, when he looks at us, the joy he feels for his son, he also feels for us. 
And we need to realize that when we pursue Christ's righteousness, we pursue a right relationship with God that can only be found through Jesus. And, and that right relationship means that when the holy God of all the universe looks at me because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, he looks at me as one who has never sinned, and he looks at me as one that he finds great joy in, just like he finds great joy in his own son. He loves us like his own. Several years ago, this little video came out. I, I've played it on many occasions at different places. It's extremely moving. And it's a true story. It's a little documentary. It took place in Norway. A young Norwegian boy was killed in an accident. It's a teenager. And the family donated his vital organs, including his heart. And his heart went to another young Norwegian boy, teenage boy. And some time later, after all the surgery were complete and the young boy was doing quite well with the new heart, they invited the mother of the boy who had died to the home of the boy who received her son's heart. And it's, it's a documentary, and, and it's a little awkward at first when you see it. There's a little, you know, just sort of the hello and... They have a meal together, and it's just sort of a strange and awkward. You know, they're very pleasant, but it's she looks at this boy, and, of course, he's alive, and her son's not. And they're all grateful that the reason her boy, that boy is alive is because her son gave his heart. And it's, it's all right, but it just, the, it's about a five- or ten-minute little documentary, and you see that. And they get ready to leave, and the mother of the boy who died leaves the house and takes a few steps out onto the sidewalk. And then she stops. And she turns, she runs back to the house, and she grabs the boy who's alive, and she pulls him to her, and she puts her ear on his chest, and she hears her son's heart beat. And she weeps, and she embraces him. Now, that's, Pales into comparison. But when God looks at us, he loves us like he loves his own son. Because it's his son's righteousness that he sees in us. Does that make sense? Pursue righteousness. Flee from these stupid things that are momentarily a distraction from life, but just get you into more trouble and make you a worse person and but, and, but, but don't just run from those. Flee to the righteousness of Jesus and who you are in him and what he's done for you. And as you flee from him and you flee from those things and you run to righteousness, then here's what you pursue, faith. These are the things you should shoot for, young man. Faith. Faith is what God gave you to believe in him in the first place. Faith is what will sustain you. Faith uh, is the substance of things hoped for, the things we don't see, but we know they're there. That's faith. Have, rely on that. Love. We should be people. Your life, Timothy, should be one that exhibits love to everyone, to, to your enemies, to those who dislike you, even no matter what. Again, you're pursuing what Christ did, and, and you see that love modeled in him. And then he says, endurance. 
This is, this is not going to go away quickly. This, this, this pursuit of, of righteousness and faith and love, you have to endure. Sometimes we think, well, I've done it, but I have to keep doing it. Yes, endurance is an important part of it, or steadfastness, perhaps, as your text might say. And I want to just say for a second, this, my friends, endurance and steadfastness is why you must have a church home. It's why you must have believers around you who help keep you steadfast and help you endure. You will not endure and be steadfast on your own. That's why in God's perfect plan, he created local congregations with leaders that you raise up, that we hold one another accountable, and we help each other stay steadfast and endure through all seasons in life. That's why the church matters to you and to me. And then gentleness. I like, yeah, just imagine that. He's listing these things you run to. You flee from the sin. We talked about those last week. And you run to the righteousness of Christ and everything I just said about that. You run to the faith that he has already given you. It is yours. You own it. It can't be taken away. That faith is saving faith. It'll help you through all kinds of things that you cannot see right now. And you, you run toward endurance and steadfastness. You have people who are around you who stay with you and hang with you and, and help you, and, and you, you endure the race. I mean, Paul uses so much language about, about even athletics and how you have to endure. Just understand that, that for this season of life, it's not always going to be easy, but we are going to win. The victory's been assured. And then it seems a little out of place here to say, and gentleness. Gentleness. Christians need to be gentle with one another. I've been raised in church all of my life, and I've seen some of the most ungentle people in my life being church members. I've seen some of the most ungentle people in my life being men who profess to be Christians, perhaps even leaders in the church, but are not gentle with their wives, are not gentle with their employees, are not gentle with people who disagree with them. For you see, the world doesn't expect gentleness. And when the world sees true gentleness, the world notices And those who've been dealt gently with, <laughs> you're right, should be the most gentle people in the world. And I want to tell you what, if you've offended a holy God, and we all have, and if we're worthy of his wrath eternally, and we all are, and because of nothing we've done, he has in his love brought his son to die for us and to redeem us, nobody, 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 nobody has been dealt more gently with than we have. And we need to be gentle with one another. We need to correct one another in gentleness. I just, I would, I would love to just spend all morning talking about the importance of gentleness and how that is so compelling to a world. I mean, go home today and turn on the news and see how much gentleness you see in this world. Go to Twitter, even among Christians, and see how much gentleness you see in this world. Go to some church business meetings. Thank God, not any I've known of here, but many in my life. 
and see how much gentleness you actually see. And when gentleness is truly there, it is so compelling. So young man, here's what you do. You flee from those things that make you love God less, and you run toward righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. And then verse 12, you fight the good fight. This is a battle. He uses that kind of language throughout the letter, and not just letter, but all letters, and Paul knows what he's talking about. This is not an easy thing. It's, it's a fight we must fight. It's a good fight. Listen, we're all going to fight. It. You, we battle in life. Life's a battle, right? You're going to fight no matter what, but make sure, Christian, you're fighting a good fight, not a bad fight. Don't just be quarrelsome to be quarrelsome. Don't just be the kind of husband or wife or child or employee or church member that likes to be right, it likes to be correct, likes to be made much of. Don't just, he says, sure, we, this, this world is combative, but fight the good fight, the fight of faith. Fight to pursue holiness. Fight to do these things. Battle the sin in your life. We say all the time, as Piper said, you battle sin by pursuing a superior pleasure, but you've got to battle it got to fight. Take hold of the eternal life of which you were called and about which you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses, in the presence of God. And then he begins to preach, who gives life to all in Christ Jesus, who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate. Pastor last night, what Jill and I heard was such a good clarity, said, when you come to know Christ, you confess it publicly. It's a public, your faith is a public faith, he said. Sometimes we say, well, my faith is private. No, it's not. It might be personal, but it's not private. Chad McDonald, the pastor at Lenexa, said that last night. I thought, that's powerful. Yeah, your faith, it might be personal, but it isn't private. Jesus didn't stand privately before Pontius Pilate. Jesus wasn't, he wasn't beaten privately. He didn't carry the cross privately up to Calvary. He wasn't crucified privately. It was all public. And Paul said, he made a confession for you publicly, and you do the same. Be bold in it. Fight the good fight in the presence of God who gives life to all in Christ, who gave a confession before Christ Jesus, but rather before Pontius Pilate. I charge you to keep this commandment without fault or failure until the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then this wonderful promise in verse 15. God will bring about this in his own time. He's the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be the honor and eternal power. Amen. Several times throughout this letter, several times in other letters, as Paul's giving, listen, this is such an important truth, church, as Paul's giving practical instruction to young Timothy or to the church at Colossae or the church of Christians at Corinth, as he gives them practical instructions, he understands that it's all about the gospel and he gets so caught up and he's in prison. I can't even begin to tell you what his surroundings look like. As bad as you think they might have been, they were far, far, far worse. 
It was a first century Roman prison. No sanitation, no electricity. Who knows what they got to eat? Could be beaten at any time. Dark, dingy. He's a Roman citizen. He shouldn't have been held like that, but he was. And yet in the midst of encouraging this young man, he breaks out into the glory of the gospel. He gets transfixed. He gets caught up. The joy he has is not in his present circumstances, his present surroundings. The joy he has is in the gospel, and it's so real. Sometimes you get the feeling if he's dictating this, and he probably was because he had some eyesight problems, and he's probably dictating this. He's probably dictating so fast the poor guy writing, he can't write it all down. He's just so excited as as he breaks into a song, as he breaks into a sermon, God will bring this about in his own time, Timothy. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see to him be honor and eternal power. Amen. I don't even see this prison I'm in. I don't even see all the pain and suffering I have. I'm just caught up in in the glory of Christ. And this is all his plan. And I don't understand it now. I don't have to understand it now. All I know is that he is sovereign. He is the Lord. He is the greater king than Caesar could ever hope to be. Everything's going to turn out exactly the way he wants it. I can rest comfortably in this prison tonight because my hope is in him, Timothy. He's not telling Timothy. Now, Timothy, you're an idiot little kid for whining because you don't have it near as bad as I do. That's how most of us talk to people, right? What do you mean you're upset? Let me tell you how bad I had it. Well, that's really good. Some of you do hospital visitation. Bless your hearts. You go and talk to somebody, and they're having some surgery. You go, let me tell you how bad mine was. Yeah, that's not exactly the way we want to do it. No, Paul, by his example to this young man, Timothy sees what's going on here. Timothy sees that. Timothy sees someone who's found his joy. Timothy knows what Paul is facing is far more painful, far more dangerous, far more burdensome than the troubles he has. But he sees in in Paul this amazing joy that transcends the reality of his life. And at the end of the day, isn't that what we all want? That no matter what happens, we can have unspeakable joy that results in a pursuit of righteousness, a love of godliness, an endurance no matter what, and even exhibits itself in a gentle, sweet heart. I think much of it centers on the fact that he knows in verse 15, God will bring all this about in his own time. He is the sovereign. Why why do we pursue sin? Why do we run off to those things that are distracting to us and maybe bring us momentary pleasure for a while? Why do we dive off into anxiety and and fear and dread of the future? And why do we do that? Because the adversary has has gotten us to believe that, that God's really not in control. The source of Paul's joy, the source of Paul's contentment is the absolute certainty Paul has 
and that God is in control of everything. And it's all according to his plan. And he says it in many different ways throughout his preaching. There's one place where Paul says, I now see, right, through what? A glass, how? Dimly. (laughs) Anybody done that? I do. Usually I don't park my car in the garage because I've got too much other stuff in there. Amen? Anybody do that? (laughs) So if it's snowy or wintry outside and I'm not the most patient person in the world, I think, well, I can scrape a little off, turn on the defroster, and by the time I get to the end of the cul-de-sac, I can probably see where I'm going. (laughs) That's looking through a glass dimly, all right? I don't recommend it. But sometimes that's how we see life. I, don't, I can't see where I'm going. I don't know where this is headed. I can't see the future. Paul says, that's okay. You don't have to. We see through a glass dimly, but one day, it's going to all be clear. And listen, when it's all clear, it's going to be absolutely exactly the way God plans it to be. For two things. Hold on to these now. You ready? For his glory and the advancement of his kingdom and for your joy. I promise you, with everything I have, and I'm preaching to myself, if you think I have victory over this, talk to my family. I do not. But I promise you, with everything I have, God's Word promises you, not just in one obscure place, but from Genesis to Revelation, promises you that one day we'll realize that not only everything that we go through in life as His children is for his plan, not just for a random act, but because he's working redemption for all who would be redeemed. And everything that goes on in your life has a part in that. And also for our joy. And when we do get to heaven, and we do now see him without that glass between us, and we see him as he really is, and we know what he really knows, we will know at that instant that all of these things were for our benefit and for our joy. Many years ago on my cell phone, I used to have different songs for different people when they would call me, you know. I don't know if you all still do that or not. If you do, well, the 90s called, and they want that back because people don't do that much anymore. But I did it back in those days. I won't tell you what the song I had was for my wife, but the first time it went off unexpectedly, I was in the presence of the president of Midwestern Seminary, and it was quite embarrassing. But um, (laughs) it's a true story. But uh, I had different songs for different... And and for one of my sons, Trenton, I had the theme song from Sanford and Son because, you know, he's my son, right? So when that song came on, I knew that it was my son, Trenton. I was at Lake the Ozarks in a, leading a conference. My son was in college. And I was at Lake the Ozarks in a conference. And um, it was 2 o'clock, 2.30 in the morning. I'm asleep in the hotel. And, uh, you know, when you're in a hotel, you don't really know where you are. Sometimes you wake up anyway. And the phone goes off, right? And I have it plugged in on the dresser across from the bed. And it goes off, and it's the theme from Sanford and Son. So I know at 2.30 in the morning, it's my college-age son at K-State. <laughs> Now, how many of you think when your son calls you from K-State at 2.30 in the morning, he's calling you to tell you what a great day he had and he's got some good grades that, that are coming? 
And so, you know, you have this physiological reaction of fear and anxiety, and you, you really do, and you're trying to, where's the phone? And, you know, I'm, I'm in a hotel. What time is it? And it's 2.30, and you, you, know, you grab the phone, and you open it up, and yes, what, what? He said, Dad? Yes, it's me. You call me. <laughs> well, Dad, I got a question. I'm like, what? You in a car wreck? You in jail? What? He said, how long does hamburger stay good in the fridge? <laughs> you can't make this up, right? K-State's raising some really bright students. I said... It never goes bad. Go ahead and cook it. I did. And I hung up the phone. And I hope you got really sick. And I really couldn't go back to sleep that night. Because I was, I was all agitated, thinking it could have been anything. You know. That's humorous and funny. But let's say it had turned out differently. Let's say it was the hospital calling me, and they had my son's phone. And they said, look, he's been in a car accident. Uh, he's, a, he's serious. He may not make it. But, and I'm, I don't know if this works or not, but go with me. It's my illustration, all right? And, and they say, look, he's going to have to have a kidney or he's going to die. And it's going to have to be yours. What, what am I going to think at that minute? Am I going to think, you know, I want to get another three or four hours sleep. Am I going to think, i got to lead a conference here in an hour, in this morning. Am I going to think, I don't want to drive all the way back to Kansas City. Or, am I going to think, I hate hospitals. Am I going to think, I don't like anesthesia. It makes me sick. Am I going to think, I don't want anybody cutting on me. And am I going to think, you know, I'm going to be sore and it's going to hurt. Am I going to think any of that? Of course not. What am I going to think? How quick can I get there? And I don't care if you use no anesthesia, if it'll save my son's life, take this thing out. And even if you have to take both of them and I have to live my life on, 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 on dialysis, better that than this young man. Do it. Why? Because I know the pain, ready, is for a purpose. Paul had learned in his life that everything he endured, he was confident was for a purpose, both for God's glory and eventually for his joy. So nothing that happened to him was going to bring him down. That's why he said, I've learned to be content in whatever condition I'm in. And that's what he's trying to teach to young Timothy, who's all in pain and all crushed and all ready to quit. He's saying, man, you're a man of God. Man up and live according to what you know you can be and what God's called you to be. First, you've got to run from those stupid things that are distracting and cause you to be less like Christ and flee toward those things that make you want to be more like Christ. And know that you can do those with the certainty that God is on his throne, that Jesus is sovereign, that God will do everything in just his right time, and it's all going to be okay. It's completely fine. We've seen the end of the game. I'll give you one more illustration. This sermon probably has more illustrations than any sermon you've ever heard. It's like a world record. But my boss at the North American Mission Board, Kevin Azell, loves Kentucky, and they beat Florida yesterday, and he's just like beyond himself right now in football. They haven't beat Florida in football in 30 years. 
but he loves Kentucky basketball. I mean, he's crazy about it. I mean, he's fanatic about it. And I heard him say one time we were out together and speaking at a conference, and he was preaching, and he, I'll never forget this illustration. He said he can't watch Kentucky basketball when it's on TV. He can't watch it because he goes crazy. You know, he says, I, I, I just, I can't enjoy it. I'm all uptight all the time. Every foul, every bad shot, every bad call. I just, I just, he said, I just can't control my, I just can't watch. So he said, and my, I can't be around my family. <laughs> Some of you know what that's like if you, you know, into sports that much. He says, so here's what I've done. I'm, I have simply, I have simply DVR'd every Kentucky game. And I only watch the games that they win. He said, I can be out preaching or speaking or traveling, and I know they won earlier that week. And he said, I can come home, and the kids can go to bed, and wife can go to bed, and I can just get all comfortable with my recliner, and I can turn on that game, and I can watch it, and I enjoy every second of it. And he, said, all the, he said, you know, the, the, the commentators, the Kentucky commentators are all worried because the team's not playing well, and this guy's hurt. No, this guy's in foul trouble. Now they're behind by 10 and they're not getting the calls they ought to get. And, you know, halftime, they're down. And everybody's coach is upset. He goes, oh, i just go and get something else to eat and sit back and watch. And so especially those games where you know, it comes down to the last few seconds, you know, calling timeout. They're going to make the free throws. They're going to get the rebound. He said, you know, if I know they're going to win, it's off this free throw. He said, sometimes I'll just pause it right before it goes in the basket. <laughs> I'll just go get me something else to eat. I'll come back. I want to enjoy this. I'll hit it, it'll go in, I'll rewind it, it comes back out, it'll go in, come back out, go in, come back out. We win. I love Kentucky basketball. We win every game I watch. If you're a true follower of Jesus and you're pursuing his righteousness and you're living close to him, that's what life is like. The end is already assured. You're not going to lose the game. The ball goes in the net. You leave the court victorious. It's going to be all right. That's what Paul is telling young Timothy. That's what I need to hear this morning. It's what we need to hear and preach to ourselves every day. It's true. If you know Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you don't, none of this is true. But he can reveal his truth to you today. And you can know him and you can experience him, and you can have the same salvation that young Timothy had, that Paul had, that I have, and that many of us in this room have. So for those of us who are his children, may we live according to our calling. May we be men and women of God who know that the victory has been assured. May we flee from those stupid things that distract us and make us less like Jesus and bring us more fear and anxiety, and may we run right to the righteousness of God, right to the glory of Christ, right to his very heart knowing that it's already been assured. Our victory is final and complete. Heavenly Father, bless these people this morning as they continue to sing and follow you. And Lord, if there's one here who needs to know you as Savior, may you reveal that truth to them even this day. And may they respond in kind. And if there's one who needs to follow you in the obedience of baptism, makes this their church home, I pray they'll speak to one of the elders this morning, even before they leave, or, or to Dan and let us be able to pray with them and talk with them. But for those of us who are your children, Lord, just plant this sermon in our heart today and the truth 
therein. In Jesus' name.